How do you respond to a player hot streak? We'll talk about that and more with Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 20th. It's show number 25 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio about how to account for hot streaks, about using advanced metrics, about a red flag for PED use. He'll have his studs and duds and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Trey Turner, Ocean Property in Oklahoma, the Arizona bullpen, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at roster shakeups in Houston and Minnesota, a closer change in Texas, and a whole lot more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on the Royals' third-base prospect Hunter Dozier. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Atlanta shortstop Ozzie Albiez and Cleveland starting pitcher Mike Clevenger. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at a fine Saturday pairing of National League right-handers with Washington's Joe Ross at Miami against Jose Fernandez. He'll also look at a Sunday American League game matching Chris Archer of the Rays against the surprising right-hander Jordan Zimmerman of Detroit in Comerica Park. Plus, two more weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about using advanced metrics in fantasy baseball. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Victoria Day this weekend in Canada, Memorial Day coming up fast. It's the start of summer, and that means we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. It's always good to have you. Uh, let's start with talking about one of the big prospects in the game that everybody's eagerly awaiting. The uh, Washington Nationals are looking at Trey Turner to solve some problems in their middle infield. However, they have financial interests in maybe putting that decision off. This got covered by Phil Hertz at Baseball HQ in the playing time today and by Greg Pyron in playing time tomorrow. What's going on here? What's going on here? And you got uh, you know Greg Pyron really laid it out very nicely. The, the financial considerations are big ones, and so we need to look at those first, I think, and and then talk about it's it's a kind of thing you you've got to balance. You know what do you what do you do as a general manager in those particular situations? Trey Turner, uh, if if the if the Nationals do not promote him until after June first, and I think uh, I think that seems likely, they're not going to bring him up uh, this close to the first of June. They'll control his rights through 2022 that would be a good thing if they can hang on to him a little bit longer and if they wait until middle mid-july he won't be arbitration eligible until 2020 as opposed to 2019 so there are real financial reasons for keeping him in the minors until it's time until those dates pass now the other issue with trey turner as good as he's been offensively uh, he's been pretty bad defensively 
He made 21 errors a year ago. He already has six and 154 chances, 32 games this season. So he's making progress, but he's still got a ways to go. So, um, you know, that's another issue. They may want to hope that he can he can pick up that part of his game, the defensive part of his game, before they bring him up. Now, the flip side of that is Danny Espinoza has been an absolute disaster. Um, his, ex- his expected batting average is 199. The guy has three home runs, one stolen base, no offensive output at all, but very good defense. So, you know, it's one of those balancing jobs. I, I guess my take on it would be as long as the Nationals are – are hanging on in the thick of the race toward the top of the standings, I would, if I were the, were, were the general manager, kind of keep Turner back a little bit. On the other hand, if they start slipping, if they go into a losing streak, if they find themselves tumbling toward the uh, the middle of the standings and losing a game or two uh, off the top, then I would think maybe it's time to get that bat in the lineup and see if it can help us. So I guess that would be my take on the situation. From a fantasy point of view, it seems like uh, you really want to try to stash Trey Turner now if he's available in your league and if he doesn't cost you a roster spot for what could be, as you said, six or seven weeks coming up to the uh, beginning of July, if that's the way that the Nationals go. But Nick, I understand this question of balance and they want to try to to, uh, uh, maintain their uh, financial control over Trey Turner as long as they can, but... Even if they're kind of hanging in the race, aren't they going to feel bad if they finish the race two games out and the, and people are going to look back at this time and say, much like they did with Steven Strasburg when they were managing his innings a couple of years ago, if you'd have had him in your lineup, you might have won the pennant. Yeah, right. You don't want to, you don't want to put yourself in that situation very definitely. You know when you and then you're open to all kinds of fan criticism about uh, caring more about the future than you do about the present. So uh, yeah, that's that's always an issue, and so I, I, they've got to certainly watch that very carefully, and determine if they're lo- if they're losing games, clo- losing close games, then I think the uh, it's going to be a time to get Trey Turner up immediately and into the lineup, where the difference of a run or two could make a difference in a win or not. Or not. And in the overall race, uh, now they have a fallback position you mentioned in that they can point to his defense and say, as good as he is, as helpful as he is with the bat, he could just as easily be killing us with the glove. So, uh, and it may even be true, uh, has that rare added advantage of actually possibly being true. So it's uh, a situation that merits watching. I'd like to add Trey Turner to my, to my reserve roster if I could do it right now. Chances are in most leagues that's not going to be possible, but it would certainly be something. Uh, one of our favorite columnist Stephen Nickrand has a couple of sell-high columns, one about batters, one about pitchers. On his batting list, he says uh, first baseman in Pittsburgh, John Jaso, is a guy that you need to look at selling high. Why is that? John Jaso's got a good bat, and at this point he's hitting 301 and three homers, 15 RBIs. That, that always all looks pretty good, but the, the thing to look at is, is, is where is John Jaso playing in your lineup? If you catch your eligible, John Jaso is a very valuable piece of a lineup because the guy's going to hit at uh, 280 or above, and, and uh, that's always good for a catcher, even if he's not hitting, getting much else. But the problem is you don't want John Jason as your first baseman. His expected power index is 51, uh, a hard contact index of 84. Uh, he can't loft the ball at all, uh, fly ball rate of 21, 62% ground ball rate, 21% fly ball rate. So he's going to contribute batting average. Uh, and he, he sees the ball well, he hits the ball well, but he doesn't have a ton of power. And uh, with a, that ground ball rate and, and the, uh, the lack of hard contact and the lack of an expected power index, uh, 
those power numbers are coming down. So if I had him in my lineup as a first baseman, I'd be trying to get rid of him right away. On the other hand, if he's catcher eligible in your league, he's a guy worth hanging on to. Boy, it's hard to see him being catcher eligible in most formats. He didn't catch it all last year, hasn't caught it all this year. Like literally zero games at the position for uh, for all of last year and, and all of this year so far. I, I take what you said about the ground ball percentage is a real problem here. Back in the day when he was uh, you know, hitting 10 home runs, 9 home runs, his uh, ground ball rate was in the 30s. Now it's almost 60% this year. And 60% ground balls, man, it's just... It's just not possible to hit home runs when you're hitting only, what, 20-25% fly balls. You'd have to have a fly ball per home run per fly ball rate that was in the stratosphere, and he's certainly not that. He's right around the normal 10-11%. Yeah, right, that's, that's right. And, you know, if you look back at Jason's history, uh, 10, in 2012 hit 10 home runs and 294 at-bats. So, you know, that, that's not too bad. But uh, if you're thinking about him as a catcher, maybe that's not too good at all. You, you want more than that out of a quarter infield position. So... That's the problem, is is, uh, is, uh, is he going to give you the power you need out of a corner infield position? I think the answer is clearly no. As I mentioned, Stephen Nickrand also in his starting pitchers column was looking at sell-high candidates, and one of the names he looked at, uh, and this is uh, an interesting one, Kenta Maeda, the right-hander in Los Angeles, has a really nice uh, ERA and whip, but he gave up a couple of home runs to Noah Syndergaard the other day, and uh, Stephen Nickran didn't point to that, but he has reasons to say that this might be the time to consider getting Maida off your roster while the getting's good. You know, certainly he's very hot right now. It certainly would be a good time, I think, to uh, if you've got a uh, uh, an owner who's ready for a trade, and uh, this is the first time the guy's been in the major leagues, you can point to the fact that he could lead the league in ERA, 2.87. My goodness, that could come down, and uh, now's a good time to trade him because that's not going to happen. Uh, expected earn run average is 3.64. Uh, right now, he's got a 24% hit rate and 85% strand rate. Those are likely to normalize a bit. And so more likely to wind up at that expected earn run average instead of down below three. So now certainly would be a good time, I think, to trade Kenta Maeda while he's a, a hot name, uh, hasn't gone into a slump, and, and does, he's the kind of thing right now owners may not worry about him very much. But the peripherals that we produce here at Baseball HQ say that he's uh, not going to maintain this kind of pace for a whole lot longer. Of course, in most formats, we're also looking for strikeouts. His current rate of dominance, 8.2 strikeouts per nine. The projection is for around the same thing, around eight strikeouts per nine innings. And he pitches a lot of innings. We're projecting 125, which means you're looking at around 110 strikeouts for the balance of the season. That's not nothing. No, that's not bad at all. I mean, that's... uh, you know, that, that's certainly worthwhile. On the other hand, you probably find some other guys out there who can get you those same strikeouts. And uh, if I could get an ace, uh, an ace quality return for, for Kenta Maeda at this point, I'd sure do it. I'd sure do it too, but I, I don't know that anybody would offer you an ace quality guy for Kenta Maeda. I think the fact that he's a relatively new pitcher with a limited track record would uh, probably discourage a lot of people. Of course, there are pricing issues and so forth, so I guess a lot depends on league context. Uh, I'd certainly be interested in selling high on Kenta Maeda. I just don't know what I could expect in most uh, league situations in return. But if it's something, it would be worth thinking about. It's the kind of thing where you don't want to... You don't, this, he's not going to drop off the face of the earth. He's going to be a solid pitcher, I think, for the remainder of the season. So it just depends on what can you get for him. Uh, and if somebody is, is really hungry out there and thinks this is the uh, the next coming of Clayton Kershaw, then uh, then I would go ahead and, and sell. But uh, certainly a guy who's going to be a solid contributor. It just depends on what value your opponents are going to put on him in a trade situation. 
If I had a guy in my league who thought that Maeda was the next coming of Clayton Kershaw, there's other things I'd try to sell him too, such right. as <laughs> oceanfront real estate in Oklahoma and so forth. Uh, <laughs> uh, and finally, Doug Dennis, our bullpens columnist, has been going through the bullpens in the major leagues uh, this week in the National League. He looks at Philadelphia and Arizona, and I'm curious what he says about the Diamondbacks bullpen situation, Nick. Well, you know, Brad Ziegler is doing, is doing the job at the moment. He's converting his, his save chances. Uh, he's getting the job done. He's not blowing the saves. But lots of reasons to worry about Brad Ziegler. I mean, Brad Ziegler is a, is a ground ball specialist with a low, low dominance rate, 5.5 dom, uh, 1.2 command ratio. So, you know, th- this is not the kind of thing you, you look for in a closer. And uh, a whip of 1.65 at the moment. So he's putting guys on base, but he's getting out of the innings without producing, letting letting them get, get runs in. So, uh, you know, the question is how long can Brad Ziegler maintain the closer position at that level? With a BPV of 18, we would say not very long uh, because he's likely to suffer a, a real blow-up sooner or later. And so there are a couple of the guys in that pen worth looking at. Probably the next guy in the pecking order is Dan Hudson. Uh, 1.56 ERA, 0.69 whip at the moment. Um, that may, that may uh, the kind of guy who could transition very easily into the closer position uh, currently has a, a, 90, a 56 BPV, however, so uh, there's not a, there, there's some issues with Hudson as well, and again, one of them is a low DOM issue, 5.7 dominance. So uh, he might get the next shot, but again, he may not be the kind of guy who's going to hang on all his season. The guy to sneak onto your roster if you're looking for a potential closer that might not happen, however, is Tyler Clippard. Tyler Clippard, 8.8 DOM, 4.0 command, 107 BPV, uh, a, a solid, a solid actual ERA of 2.76, a 1.29 WHIP. So he's not going to hurt you if you put him on your roster. Um, but if uh, he, if he could transition into the closer role, which he might do down the road in uh, six weeks or so, uh, then he would, would have real value. I'm going to play devil's advocate a bit here on the on the issue of whether Ziegler can maintain this ground ball rate. He's never had a ground ball rate in the major leagues below 60%, and sometimes as high as 76%. I think the 60% this year is a floor, although it's it's quite a bit lower than it was last year, and I'd be concerned about that because all of the difference between last year's 73% ground ball rate, how about that, and this year's 60%, it all went into line drives, and that's not good news. No, when, when it goes into line drive, that's not good news at all because those things frequently go for hits. As well, his control rate is uh, doubled from 2.3 walks per nine to 4.7 walks per nine this year. That also has to be a bit of a concern. I agree with you. I think of uh, Hudson and Clippard. I like Clippard more as the guy to stash. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 and it is a stash. I mean, it's not something we're, we're not we're not saying here. Ziggler's going to blow up in the next two weeks. Get Clippard now. That's that's not going to happen. But uh, it's the kind of thing that could happen later in the season. Or if you're in a uh, if you're in a uh, dynasty league, the kind of thing you might want to tuck tuck away, knowing that maybe by September I'll have another closer out of this. That might be worth doing. But you know the ground ball rate can keep Ziggler going for a while. I think it can, and it has in the past. That's for sure. He's 30 saves last year, despite a really pedestrian dominance rate of under five strikeouts per nine. So he's he's picked up a little bit in that regard this year. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out this week. I know you're uh, off to Disney World with the grandkids. We're off to Disney World with three with three gang grandkids, so we may be a little crazy by this time next week. <laughs> yeah, you'll be looking forward to talking about fantasy baseball again here at Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Nick. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, a terrific grandfather, as we heard, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Let's go over to the American League now, BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. As an Angels fan, you must be thrilled, uh, maybe reconsidering your decision to let go of your season tickets. The Angels have signed Tim Lincecum. Yeah, uh, and uh, no, no, not reconsidering anything right now. Uh, obviously, Lincecum, uh, he hasn't posted a sub-4 sub four ERA in uh, the last four seasons. Uh, everything's trending badly. Uh, he's probably not going to be ready to pitch to them for another four or six weeks. He's a wild card. I mean, they're, they're going to try to sell tickets and uh, hopefully catch uh, lightning in a bottle, but uh, I don't see him making much difference. In the meantime, they're going to need somebody in the rotation. I'm guessing Matt Shoemaker? Yeah, a lot can happen between the time Linsican is ready to pitch. Uh, Shoemaker right now is the obvious um, pitcher to depart the rotation. He has an 8.49 ERA over his first seven starts and giving up a ton of home runs. Um, but obviously, given that the Angels are, are – the rotation is – predominantly stacked with number four, number five starters. Uh, anyone can go sideways for a short period of time, so we'll see what happens. On to some real news, and uh, in fantasy baseball, hardly anything bigger than a closer replacement. We had one in Texas this week. Sean Tolleson looked terrible. Uh, two or three save opportunities in a row. He gave up a grand slam at uh, uh, pitching against Oakland. So the key question is, how confident are we that Sam Dyson, the new closer, keeps the role? Well, we're not all that confident but that's not really a reflection of Dyson's skills and he's certainly the best bet right now they've already announced that he's going to take over the ninth inning um, my hesitance for the entire season uh, looking outward it's more about Dyson's ability to go more than an inning and the Rangers front of the bullpen issues uh, in, in, which, in which make Dyson perhaps uh, essential to pitch earlier than that uh, uh, you've got Jake Diekman and Matt Bush um, both of whom are pitching well. Now, they both have a lot to prove. Um, these are 2016 small samples, and they're not nearly as reliable as Dyson. But they could get save opportunities as well. I, I personally think the Ranger situation has uh, committee potential. With Dyson leading the way, at least at the outset, uh, are, would you rein in your uh, willingness to bid a lot of fab money on Dyson based on what you're thinking? Yeah, I would bid fab money on Dyson just because he's really, really good. He's proven that over two years. His ground ball rate is approaching 70%. His strikeouts are down a little bit this year, but it's a small sample, and he could he could bump them a little bit. Um, I mean, y you'll pick up saves, and you'll pick up good ERA and whip uh, with him on your team. Um, he's the best bet for Ranger saves right now. The other news in Texas has to do with an activation from the DL. The outfielder Shinsu Chu has been reported back on the roster as of Friday night. Uh, it was not immediately clear that that was going to be the case, but what happens uh, when Shinsu Chu finally does re-enter the lineup? Well, the big news before that already happened in that uh, Delano DeShields was out at center field. Um, they've moved um, Ian Desmond over from left field to center. With Chu coming back, they're going to move no more, uh, no more Mazzara from right field to left field, and Chu will take over his old spot. So the outfield alignment in Texas looks like Mazzaro in left, Desmond in center, and uh, Chu in right. And what happens to all the other guys who were playing out there? They just grab more bench? Yeah, Ryan Rule was getting a lot of playing time in, uh, in left field, and he's probably going to start bleeding some at-bats right now. But this was always the plan uh, for a while. Yeah, with uh, sending the shields down uh, a couple of days ago. 
Injury news in Oakland, not that that's really news. It seems like they're uh, facing an injury every day lately. Josh Reddick broke his thumb on Thursday night. Mark Kana was already out with season-ending surgery. Looks like uh, Coco Chris could be in line for some extra playing time, presuming he can stay healthy. Yeah, they've, they've had some health problems in uh, in Oakland. Obviously, they still have Chris Coughlin. He's slumped a lot lately, but his uh, his BPIs look pretty good. Um, but he, he also plays uh, third base and second base. Um, they've got Andrew Lambeau down in AAA, and he's, he's, he's capable of coming up. He's always had terrific power, but uh, timing has always been an issue with him. And right now he's slumping, so I'm not sure he's going to be of any, immediately, of any immediate help. It looks like Crisp is the big playing time winner for now, but that could change uh, come summer. And especially if he gets hurt, which he usually does, there's a lot of uh, fluidity in that lineup. Is there any way that Billy Butler gets first base eligibility as they move their pieces around? Yeah, it's it's possible, I guess. But again, uh, you've got Lon, Yonder Alonso at uh, at first base. Uh, he's the the left-handed part of any equation there. Um, the the, the uh, A's have been moving people in and out of that DH spot. They could put Chris Davis back in uh, in left field to uh, accommodate the uh, the Redick uh, corner outfield injury. So maybe Billy Butler does get some time. That's a pretty good point. And of course, Jock, Chris Coughlin has been playing a little bit of outfield along with a little bit of infield. We would suspect maybe that he'll get more outfield time, which would mean a little more infield time for others. Yeah, absolutely. Although Coughlin's been playing most of the time, even during his slump against right-handed pitching. Uh, He's not going to play much against lefties. uh, So yeah, I think you'll find him in the outfield a little more often now as well. In Houston, they're really shuffling the deck. Uh, We can do that in parts, I guess. Let's start with Evan Gaddis. They've sent him down to get some reps behind the plate. They brought him back. He is going to catch in Houston. What are the implications here for playing time? With Evan Gaddis at catcher, it it really does improve his... um um, fantasy prospects. Now he's only he's only caught one game there. It was last night. Uh, all the reports were good, but um, his bat awoke a little bit in the minors. He hit a bunch of home runs. Um, he, he's he's good for 20 plus home runs uh, in the majors. Obviously, um, this is going to help his value a whole bunch. And uh, who's out in the uh, from the catcher spot or who loses that time back there? They didn't have much. No, they didn't. They just uh, DFA'd Eric Kratz. Uh, he's gone. Um, he's he's going to be basically Gaddis is going to um, move move behind Jason Castro as the number two catcher. So I wouldn't be surprised to see something of a platoon there, given that uh, Gaddis is a right-handed hitter and Castro is a lefty. And of course, Jock, one of the victims of all this movement was Preston Tucker. He's already been sent down to the minors. Yeah, Tucker was struggling. He wasn't uh, giving uh, the uh, the Astros a, a lot of the left-handed power against right-handed hitters that he was doing last year. They're hoping to get his uh, bat started again. Houston has been playing so far below the level that was expected of them entering this year that now the Astros' offense have just seemingly reached a point where it's going to throw all of its major league talent out there for a little while just to see who can get hot and win playing time. And part of these moves are just trying to get people started. Trying to, They're going to send major leaguers to the minors to to see if they can get their bats going. They're going to bring up minor leaguers. Um, they've, they've got a lot of MLB-ready talent uh, on, on that, in that organization, and it's going to be interesting to see who steps up. Carlos Gomez goes to the DL. That might actually help his fantasy teams, given he won't be piling up those useless at-bats. And they called up a couple of guys, Colin Moran and Tony Kemp. Any usefulness for fantasy owners there? Yeah, potentially. Uh, Moran is an interesting guy. He's a former first-round draft pick, um, and uh, his his bat was fairly silent for a little while until the second half last year in Double A, and he really became productive. He was hitting for power. He was getting on base. Uh, he's walking a lot. He's hitting for average. Um, 
but uh, he he hasn't been that good this year. He was hitting about 280, 290 when he got called up in the minors. Only a couple of home runs. He's a left-handed hitter with uh, good plate skills. They're going to give him a chance to play over there against right-handed pitching. Tony Kemp is an on-base machine. Uh, he was hitting uh, 290 with a 400 on on-base percentage in in AAA. Um, those, these are the kind of skills that Houston really needs. They've got good power. They strike out a lot. Um, they need somebody who can come up and, and get timely hits and walk a little bit more. Um, both, of these, both of these players have a chance to win playing time if they can produce. I'm not sure how much of a window they're going to have to show what they can do. In Minnesota, they seem to be doing uh, kind of the opposite of Houston. They're rebuilding, uh, trying to rebuild, and everything they do seems to be disappointing. Now they're reacting and trying a whole bunch of new stuff. And a couple of surprising, to me anyway, moves that they made. Jose Barrios, who was a top prospect, he didn't fare well in his go-round this year. And Eddie Rosario got sent down to the minor leagues. Let's start with Barrios. Is this just trying to get his head on straight, or is he down there for the duration? When do we expect him back? Yeah, well, you and I watched, both watched and discussed Barrios' first start here a couple of weeks ago. It was obvious that he had good stuff, but he had trouble throwing strikes, particularly first pitch strikes. And uh, his control issues after that game just stayed with him. I mean, if you look at his numbers in four starts, he was only able to pitch 15 innings. He struck out 20 hitters, which is a testimony to his stuff, but he had 12 walks and five home runs. And the, the bottom line was he wasn't throwing strikes, and when he came in, they just clobbered him. So it wasn't a big surprise for, for me to, to see him get sent down. The shock to me was this was a strike thrower in the minor leagues. He, was, he, he, he had averaged 2.5 walks per nine innings throughout his career. He's, he's 22 years old. He, he had a stumble, obviously, in his first uh, uh, major league effort. Uh, he's going to be back as soon as he learns to trust his stuff. And in the meantime, what do they do to fill the rotation slot? Well, that's a good question. Um, they have a guy named, um, his last name is uh, is Dean. and I'm, Pat Dean? Yeah, exactly. And, and when you don't know somebody's name, that's a danger sign. Plus, with a bad team like Minnesota, um, the bottom line is, I think Barrios, once he get his, gets his head on straight, will be will be will be back up again. It, it's funny you, we compare Minnesota to Houston just a little bit. Yeah, Minnesota's not uh, contending, and 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 they really weren't expected to going into the year, but they were expected to take a, a rebuilding step up. And and like Houston, they've really disappointed. And like Houston, now they're reacting and they're trying new things. I would expect them to throw everyone in the kitchen sink out there into. Uh, a, a, uh, a lot of their young players into the majors uh, until they find solutions. And that leaves us with Eddie Rosario. He was playing well defensively, but he was struggling with the bat. What are the implications with his demotion? I'm looking at uh, Arcia. Does it firm up playing time for Danny Santana? Uh, maybe Miguel Sano gets to lumber around in the outfield a little more. Byron Buxton could be recalled. Max Kepler could be recalled. A lot of moving parts here, Jock. Yeah, I think Rosario got sent down out of frustration with his pitch selection, and he'd made a couple of bonehead plays on the base pass. You know, I'm, I, I probably like Rosario more than I should. I've, I've watched him in games. He has sneaky power. He has good speed. The problem with Rosario is his pitch selection is just awful. Um, he managed to hit uh, 270 something last year uh, on, on the back of a, of a hit rate that was something like 34%. Um, this year he seems to be swinging at everything until he, he, he learns how to 
which pitches to lay off of and which pitches to swing at, it's going to hurt what are natural skills. Uh, Arce is going to get a chance to build on what was a fast start, although he's been cooling down lately. Max Kepler has heated up in AAA. I wouldn't be surprised to see him back soon. Byron Buxton as well is heated up there, although they may give him a little more time given the given uh, his struggles earlier in the year. The Twins have a lot of talent, so um, this could go a lot of ways over the next few uh, few weeks, but they've really been a big disappointment this year. I see that they signed uh, former Astros outfielder Robbie Grossman. Is he just bench depth? Yeah, Robbie Grossman has been a little bit better this year, but when you look at his uh, his skill set, uh, not impressed. This was a guy who got a lot of credit for, for uh, good plate discipline and walking a lot in the minors. But he didn't do much of anything else. He never had much of a running game. He never showed any power. And when he got to the majors, you're talking about a um, a guy who made about 70% contact, hit about 220. And when you're when you're doing that, uh, and and you can't run, um, and you don't have any power, you know, you're you're really not much use. Um, I would steer clear of Robbie Grossman. Cameron Mabin was recalled uh, back to Detroit after his DL stint. Any threat to Justin Upton there? What are the playing time implications? Well, yeah, Upton was playing center field for a few games, but since Mabin's been back, he started in center uh, uh, the two games he's been back. Uh, Upton is obviously not a center fielder for more than spot play, simply because defense matters, obviously. Um, it's interesting. There's a, there's a playing time squeeze in Detroit, and they've had trouble uh, scoring as many runs as they're used to. Um, that playing time squeeze is now in the outfield and DH spots, especially with Stephen Moya up uh, um, but I guess the question is, will Upton and Moya, or will Upton and Mabin alternate a little bit, uh, depending on whether a ground ball or a fly ball pitcher is on the mound? It's a tough call. I mean, Moya's been actually pretty good to date with Detroit. He's uh, been seven for 19 with some some hard contact. Uh, he could get sent down soon. You've always got Anthony Ghost in the minors to come back once he once he gets straightened out a little bit. Uh, it's it's another fluid situation over there in Detroit. Seems to me that Ghost is finished. Uh, I can't believe that they've sent him down and called uh, Stephen Moya up just so they can reverse the proceedings sometime later. Uh, Ghost is a veteran. He wasn't doing anything. I think his slugging percentage was under three fifty. He was barely reaching base, uh, well under three hundred. I wonder if the if the the joint occupancy of the outfield is going to be Mabin and Moya rather than Ma- uh, Moya and Upton. They're paying Upton a lot of money, and uh, maybe it shouldn't, but it often uh, matters when they're making their playing time decisions who's getting the most dough. Well, yeah, I don't think Upton's playing time is in any question. The only issue is whether he's in uh, left field or center field. And you're right, the, the two that, that could be going in and out of the lineup are, are um, Mabin and, uh, and, and Moya. The big question is how often are they going to use Justin Upton in center field? That's interesting. It is. He, I've seen him play a couple of games uh, while he was in center field. He wasn't horrible out there. He didn't look overmatched or taking terrible routes or anything like that, but he's certainly no center fielder. That that much is obvious. In Tampa, Logan Forsyth, who's been something of the uh, offensive driver of the club, is now on the DL. And uh, with Logan Forsyth out, again, we're going to have some playing time implications. Yeah, it helps Steve Pierce, who's been really good and really underrated the past couple of seasons. He has a uh, Good patience and power, decent contact. Uh, he had been spelling Logan Morrison uh, versus left-handers at first. In fact, he'd been winning some of Morrison's playing time um, because uh, Morrison had, had been so awful. And now he's playing second base again with uh, Tim Beckham. A lot of versatility here uh, with Pierce in uh, 25 leagues, including the outfield where he, where he um, um, uh, acquired his uh, eligibility last uh, 
last year. But uh, I like Steve Pierce at second base. First base, second base, and the outfield eligibility for Steve Pierce, uh, uh, pretty much by any set of rules uh, in in almost any league. And he has been playing well. Uh, Tim Beckham, uh, not so much a fan of Tim Beckham. How about you? Yeah, same here. Uh, not a lot of contact. Uh, once had good speed and had some uh, power speed potential as a, as a rookie, but that contact rate is just killing him. The Kansas City Royals world champion, uh, their rotation is in a lot of trouble. They've had a lot of injury trouble now. Chris Young and Chris Medlin are both out, and uh, Danny Duffy and Dylan G are both in. Is either of them rosterable? Well, Duffy's been good all season, as he has been recently in relief in recent years. Uh, um, he pitched three innings in his first effort. He obviously needs to stretch out. Unfortunately, Duffy has seemed challenged in the past as a starting pitcher. Uh, uh, his, his strikeouts seem to drop. His, his walks seem to rise the more innings he pitches. So he's still a flyer. I like him better as a reliever. Uh, G has been really good out of the pen this year, but he's been mediocre in recent years as a starting pitcher. I mean, he's had his moments, but uh, again, both of these guys as starters are flyer material only. And again, that depends on your league. They both went for pretty significant fab bids in the Tout American League only, but that's because there's very slim pickings in in an only league, and sometimes you'll take anybody who gets out there every five days, even if it's for only five innings at a time. Uh, Finally, Jock, uh, in New York, Luis Severino, a guy that really hasn't quite put it all together but has a lot of potential. He's on the DL. Is Severino still worth hanging on to, Jock? Yeah, I think... Particularly if you're in a keeper league, yeah. I mean, the tricep strain that uh, he, he reportedly has doesn't have any limit ligament damage. And he really hasn't pitched as bad as those early results indicate. Uh, he has a 36% hit rate and a 59% strain rate. As you well know, the combination of those two things are going to kill you. That said, his strikeouts have been down along with his swinging strikes. Um, he probably needs a minor league refresher and some adjustment. He's going to take some time out for the injury. It's tough to tell whether he's going to rebound in time to help anyone this year. He still throws mid-90s. He has a future somewhere, be it in a rotation or a bullpen, as as many have suggested. Um, he's still an interesting guy. I just don't know how valuable he's going to be this year. Who gets the spot? Well, Ivan Nova has been taking his place. Um, and uh, I think he's a better flyer than the Kansas City guys we just mentioned does. He's, uh, he's two years off of uh, Tommy John's surgery. His dominance hasn't quite come back, but he's throwing ground balls. He's keeping the walks down. And, of course, he's got that triple-headed monster in the bullpen that has now uh, saved a couple of games in a row for him. Uh, he could rack up the wins on that team. So, uh, uh, interesting flyer. All right, Jock, thanks a million. It's been great as usual. Hey, PD, wait a minute. While you're here, you're near Toronto. What's up with Jose Batista hitting leadoff the other night? It's funny you should bring that up, Jock. I was talking about this a few nights ago with my wife, Lisa, and I said I thought the Jays should consider using Bautista at the top of the order. You know, last year they scored almost 900 runs, and this year they're on a pace for 644, and uh, it's almost all because they just haven't been generating any on-base performance at the top of the order. They were using Kevin Pillar, and he was batting 198 as the leadoff hitter with a 231 on-base percentage. They had to do something to start putting base runners aboard for all those bangers behind them, including Bautista, of course. I imagine they considered Saunders. He has a 375 on-base, but he can't hit left-handers. Justin Smoke has a very high on-base percentage this year, over 400, but he really doesn't have a full-time position, and of course he's really slow on the base pass. You don't want the guy clogging things up. Ezekiel Carrera can run. But he's a 305 on base versus right-handed pitchers. Not really a full-time player, I don't think, in their estimation. 
Bautista's a 365 on base versus right-handers, 379 versus left-handers. He draws a ton of walks, never lower than 13% walk rate in the last nine or 10 years. I think it's a terrific move, Jock. How did it strike you? I knew Batista was patient, but I'd always focused on his power. Um, so you think this is this might be a long-term solution? What about, will it change at all when Devin Travis comes back? Travis had a 360 on base last year, handled both right-handed and left-handed pitching relatively well. I think they might want to ease him back in and not put him under that kind of pressure as the leadoff hitter right away, but I certainly can see him as a leadoff option. In the meantime, Bautista can do the job. If they start scoring runs, I wouldn't be surprised to see Jose Bautista staying at the top of the order for a little while. And it could mean a few extra stolen bases. He's a pretty good base runner, Jock. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've known that for a while. So Toronto's not scoring runs. Yeah, you time to uh, time to do something different, huh? Time to do something different. Jock, uh, as I said, thanks a million. Appreciate you taking the time, and uh, we'll talk to you in two weeks' time. Yep. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man covering the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up, our feature interview. It's Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio next on Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you very much. I gotta, I gotta thank all of you, all the fans here in San Francisco. Road and home, it's been fantastic. I want to thank you all. I gotta thank my teammates for their support. Through all this, you guys have been strong, and you've given me all the support in the world, and I'll never forget it as long as I live. Thank you. I got to thank my family, my mother, my wife Liz, my kids, Nikolai, Shakari, and Asia. I'm glad I did it before you guys went to school. Thanks for being here. I got to thank the Washington Nationals for your support. Thank you for understanding this day. It means a lot to me. My dad. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. Jeff, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Always glad to do this, Patrick. Always a good, enlightened discussion. Love doing it. Glad to have you. Uh, let's start off with a quick recap of uh, how your teams are doing in your experts' leagues. Well, I have 19 teams in my various leagues in formats. And on the balance, I'm doing pretty well, except for Tell Wars, which has just been horrendous. Um, it, it's been as bad a team as I've, I've ever drafted, I feel like. And that's, I mean, it's one month in, so it, it, it can change. But I've got a number of guys that are underperforming, or I just misread. The one that pops to my mind, of course, I'm in that league as well. I was two seats over from you at draft. The second you finished uh, acquiring Troy Tulowitzki, you were shaking your head and saying, I don't know why I did that. Yeah, I wrote, a, I wrote an, uh, an article saying why I'm underpricing, you know, I'm way under the pack in Troy Tulowitzki. I underestimated the pack. <laughs> I thought that uh, he, I really was just advancing a bit, uh, mostly. I mean, I was looking for power at the time. I, I'll, I'll cop to that and... 
I was, you know, I was like, okay, I, I don't think this will get him, but I'll keep the bit, bit going, and voila, it, everyone got silent. I was like, oh, I'm donning the Jester's Motley here. Uh, and it, it's, it's exactly the wrong type of league to end up with him, too. Uh, AO only, so, you know, it, if he does get his annual injury, you know, there's, the replacement value is nil. Um, and, you know, it's just, it, it also, the impact of a low batting average guy or a low OBP guy in, in this case is huge, and he has been a low OBP guy this year. In addition to just being, uh, you know, you know, low batting average, he's striking out more than ever, and it's it's painful. So yeah, it was an oops, and it was a mid price oops. I you know, and there's others I could have ended up with there instead. I mean, he is drawing walks. I will say that, but when you're hitting 200, it's hard to have a good on base percentage. Even with all those walks, you're right. Shortstop was an area where uh, I made an error as well. I ended up getting uh, Marcus Semyon out of Oakland for $16. And I, at the time, I th- he was the best guy available, but I, I misread that market pretty badly too. And uh, there, w- there were better shortstop, cheaper shortstops available. Probably shouldn't have done that either. But uh, he's hitting some home runs, but his on-base percentage is terrible. I've got- yeah, it's 313, though. It's not 288. That's a non- non-insignificant difference. That's true. Um, I like Semyon, and they're moving him up in the lineup now a little bit, too, if you notice. He's been batting 6th and 7th instead of ninth. so a little progress there, and the team as a whole is starting to heat up, Valencia, Davis. They're actually, you know, can be a threat offensively. I, I don't mind Semyon. I, I would do a challenge trade with you right now. I would trade you to Lewitsky for Semyon. I would take Semyon off your hands if you'd like. Let me think about that, and I'll email you a little later. Uh, in your Rotowire blog post last week, you discussed your fab activity in a couple of leagues. And the in the first one, you commented about starting pitching on your one of your teams, and you said it had reached quote threat level midnight, which I thought was hilarious. That was to explain pickups Adam Morgan and Ubaldo Jimenez. And I'm wondering, Jeff, how do you decide a situation is so dire that it justifies what seem like very risky pickups like oh, Morgan they're, they're, and Jimenez. They are very risky pickups. Let's not uh, mischaracterize this. There, there, there's no certainty at all involved. I mean, you try to find reasons that you can see some upside. Um, and in the case of Morgan, for instance, he, he had added two miles an hour to his fastball, had his strikeout rate had kicked up in the minors, but he was a risky pitcher. And for one start, it was looking all right. But then, you know, against non-Braves lineups, he was still a big risk, as it turns out. And I got punished for the second one. At least I did get a win out of it. But I was already struggling in my ratios. And not just struggling, but at the bottom of my league in those. Um, So to me, it was more likely that I could make a run at the counting stats than to make a big run in the the ratio stats. Uh, And and it's a 15-team mixed league. So my my thought was, I'm going to try to maximize as many two-start starters as I can Try to catch up in wins and K's at the very least. And it all, what set the table was that my ace was not acting like an ace in Chris Archer, and my secondary, my second starter, Adam Wainwright, was acting more like a waiver wire pickup. Uh, and he's getting better in the case of Wainwright, you know, incrementally. But I, I feel like it's going to be very, you know, if those two guys don't pitch anywhere close to expectation, then I'm, I'm in big trouble. And so I have to, I think it's, that's why my situation is rather dire. The conventional wisdom, Jeff, is that it's easier to make big gains in the ratio categories, maybe by dumping some bad starters and picking up middle relievers. And if you're going to take the, uh, take the shot in the pants, you might as well take it in the counting stats and move up in the ratios. Why did you decide that it was uh, a better play to go for the counting stats? Well, couple of reasons. One, I, I think that you look at the type of league you're in. It's the NFBC, 15-team mix. There is an overall component, too. 
Um, so you don't want to give, you just don't want to give up those counting stats because you're giving it up in the overall. God forbid you actually make a run. You know, you don't want to actually jump in and you know for the overall and give that up. Give, just completely give that away. Two, I mean, it, you require a lot of innings to catch up in the, ra- the those ratios. I mean, you, I, I feel like you're that 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 it works better in a solo like in an AL only format or something like something of that sort of vein, where the inning, the innings don't matter as much, and you can have you do have the benefit of time. I feel like in an FPC you don't have as much of a benefit on that, um, and I also feel like you know I, I just don't want to give away those. Just give away those two two categories, the counting stat categories. I, so it, it's a debatable concept there, and I also feel like it's also to catch up in ratio categories. Um, maybe and you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but I also don't think like you can't catch up later on in K's and wins because, as opposed to a lot of other leagues, there's there's less giving up in August and September by the teams that aren't contending. I feel like that's been my experience at least. I've always noticed when I've been playing in various leagues that as the innings pile up is when I decide I'm going to uh, not bother trying to shore up my ratios because the denominators of the ratios are just getting too big. Right, exactly. And, and that's, a tr- that's a real problem for me as well. Uh, in AL Tout, you threw a Hail Mary of sorts and signed some players who aren't even in the majors yet. Uh, walk us through that decision. Well, again, okay, so this is a really bad team. Keep, them, keep that in mind. Um, when I'm rostering the likes of Johnny Giavatella and you know Omar Infante and some other bad hitters, uh, you know, and my my stud hitters aren't studs. When Prince Fielder is hitting like Johnny Giavatella, uh, that's a real problem. And I feel like I'm gonna ha- instead of tr- keep continuing to troll and scrounge for guys that are just getting at bats, I'd rather find guys that p- could be potentially difference makers. Uh, Alex Bregman is one I, is the big one that I wanted to get for sure. Uh, the Astros have moved him to third base, and he's just totally raking it. He's got the prospect pedigree. Why not take a chance on someone there? And instead of waiting for when he gets called up, I can pick him up on the cheap now, roster him, act, have him active for a week, and then and then hopefully I jump the gun on him getting the call. Chris List did this successfully last year with Carlos Correa and a, a couple other guys. Um, and I, I think it's kind of a viable plan. Now, it, it, is it risk-laden? Of course it is. But I'm also in last place. <laughs> Why not take a risk when you, when, you know, especially in a league, it's, I mean, it, it's really winner-take-all. I mean, it, that, yeah, we get some penalties and fab for fin- finishing down at the bottom and all that. But at the same time, I don't feel like there's, there's a whole lot of penalty for not doing well. Uh, and so I'd rather take a chance in making the glorious run and getting a few guys that could be huge difference-makers Instead of going and just scrounging around the, the waiver wire for the next, uh, you know, I'm trying to even think of a good example, Matt, the next Matt Dominguez, which, you know, you're going to get, that's pretty thin gruel. It is, and it's one of the uh, interesting things about having a team that's underperforming. You don't mind putting a guy in at third base who you know is going to get zeros for the week because he's not supplanting a guy who's getting great numbers for you. Right. And so it's not the cost is very relatively low. You mentioned Alex Bregman. Of course, he's Larry Schechter's nephew. Larry Schechter's leading the American League uh, Tout Wars League. Uh, did you grab him on purpose just to put one in Larry's eye? No, no. In fact, uh, I didn't do very good on my opposition research. I remember that he had a nephew that was going to be high in the draft class last year. I forgot who it was. Uh, that said, it's good to know that I might have some draft, uh, I mean, some trade ammo there with Larry at some point down the road. But no, I wasn't trying to, to stymie Larry by any means. Uh, just 
trying to find talent. And keep in mind, I would never do this in a mixed league. This is only something that you try to do in an AL-only league, and it's only something that you – I feel like unless if you have a spot to burn, which I had, spot, I had copious spots to burn. The other thing, and one other thing, note about this, Tout Wars has DL spots, and they have unlimited DL spots. If you have five injuries, five guys can go on the deal, and you can pick up five other guys. Other leagues, you don't have DL spots, or you have two DL spots on Yahoo, for instance, uh, where the, that makes the free agent pool a lot stronger. And in Tower Wars, the free agent pool is just utterly barren, op, you know, barring prospects coming up or trades to the, to the AL. It, it's, it's super rare to find a hitter. For instance, that's going to be you know, it just happens to emerge and be available, and you can pick them up mid-season. Usually, it's going to be a case where it's a, a trade causes something, or a prospect gets called up. Those are your two avenues to help your offense. In fact, the free agent pool is pretty much barren when we finish the draft because after yeah. we draft our guys, then we have a reserve round, which kind of cleans out the top layer of prospects at least and and anybody who's got a pulse as far as 25 or 40 man rosters uh, so it, it does get very thin very fast that's for sure and that it's a it's an interesting experience to go through I've my, my main background is in American League only and I've had been playing mixed for the last couple of years and you forget you know how just how thin it gets and how fast it gets thin yeah and in the in the draft itself in the auction itself too if you don't watch it if you don't manage it now, this year was a little unique, too. Steve Moyer did the whole buy an entire offense in almost, almost a Labadini. It was a modified Labadini sort of draft plan, and that also thinned the ranks offensively, made it a lot harder to find good hitters uh, at reasonable prices, and I, you know, it had an effect on us uh, that way. Uh, Doug Dennis had done that successfully a couple of times in, uh, in L. Labor, and you know, their, their buddies, they talk about that plan often themselves. I, and uh, it was interesting to see them see that in motion a little bit. When you decided you were going to pick up prospects that you thought could be difference makers, how did you choose the prospects you wanted? You mentioned Bregman. He has a path to playing time. Uh, just give us a quick overview of the other guys you picked and why. Uh, you know, I was trying to find guys that are available, too, because you know, some of them have been already picked over. Liz picked up uh, Mancata. He picked up Bientiendi. Uh There's a couple of the, you know, a couple of those are already gone, so you're just trying to find high high pedigree guys, guys that are at the top of the prospect rankings that aren't in low A, you know, aren't, you know, aren't in A ball. You're trying to find guys that might theoretically get called up this year and, you know, just ha- have some sort of impact. Uh, so, and it's, it's actually pretty thin among pitchers, too. You can't really do that with too many pitchers right now. Blake Snell is long gone. Um, you know, guys like that are all, are all pretty well gone. Uh, but, um, so I just try to find who, you know, double A or higher is basically what I was looking for. Um, and Re- Renato Nunez is another guy that could get the call. Uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they can get some. He's going to get the playing time. Valencia is really heated up and is healthy again, so that's going to make it harder uh, for his path to get to the majors. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Jeff Erickson from RotoWire and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. A terrific show if you have SiriusXM online or in your car or anything. Boy, you should be listening to this. It's a terrific show. Uh, you also have a Twitter account like most of us, Jeff. You asked your 13,000 followers, woo, regular Justin Bieber, if they thought, uh, <laughs> well, you've got Prince Fielder who's stinking out the joint. I've got Justin Upton who's stinking out the joint, although he did have a uh, eruption for a run-scoring single uh, on Wednesday against uh twins twins and and he went a day without a strikeout on on tuesday it was, it was i think we stopped the presses literally i certainly did but you asked your followers 
to pick Upton or Prince Fielder as the better bet to bounce back from historically awful starts. What did they decide? It was about five to two in favor, you know, that ratio of uh, Upton over Fielder. And I kind of tend to agree with the the crowd on this one. I'm concerned that Fielder has a physical issue um, that is preventing him from playing well. And, you know, it's an undisclosed uh, physical issue. I mean, they keep rolling him out there, but although he did get Monday off against the lefty, but I watch his at-bats, and he just makes the weakest contact. You know, it's not like he's, you know, with, with Upton, he's swinging and missing a lot, of course, but when he does make contact, it's strong. Uh, you know, he's got a high BABIP, and, you know, a couple of his followers responding, well, look at the BABIP, it's going to go even worse. I, I don't think that's the, I think that's the start of the conversation, not the end of it. I don't think it's the be-all, end-all, and I know that's something we'll be addressing a little bit later today, too, but um, I do think that it, in the case of Fielder, why is he not? Why is his BABIP so low? Well, it's because he's making such weak contact. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the technologies we have now. As we can see, like you know, the speed off, you know, bat, you know, ball, you know, the batted ball velocity, things like that. Strong contact, strong contact, medium contact, weak contact, whichever metric you'd like to use. You know, some are a little bit more subjective than others, uh, but you know, it, it's. I think it's illustrative of the type of swings he's getting and i don't think they're that great and i don't know i i just I, i'm not that optimistic about him if i was given the choice i would have picked upton too and not just because i have him on my tout team right. but i agree with you it's with him it's just he seems to be pressing so hard and swinging at everything that's you know within a foot and a half of the plate high low inside outside he seems to be victimized by breaking balls away a lot and that's the kind of thing that never seemed to affect him before. And I, I just, I just think he's a good enough player, and he's been so consistent over the last few years that you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Jeff, right. on your on your Sirius XM show, you and Chris Liss were talking about Trevor's story before the discussion moved to a more general discussion about how to account for hot and cold streaks when you're assessing players. Can you summarize the main idea that you guys got to, and and how you guys came out on that discussion? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, one is the selective endpoints problem. A lot of times, people will say, "Well, take out the opening week of the season where he hit seven homers and he's only hit X, you know, and he's only hitting this, or or he is hit, hitting this, and that's just fine." Was actually the context of the uh, the tweet that that made that spurred the discussion. But it, it's you don't you can't take out these things. You, you if you did this illustrate if you did that example with every player you'd find you know okay well fine he's still relative to that takeout he's still doing all th- th- this um, or you know it's just it happened it's part of who he is we can't take it out um, and yes uh, there are anomalies there are sometimes you know you can you can sometimes find a reason to point out that anomaly and if you can do that then I think maybe you can apply the takeout situation but more often than not. Everybody has peaks and valleys, and it, it's, I think it's bad analysis to, to suggest you take that out. I think that you're, you know, players aren't these fixed points. They're particles. And, you know, are they a particle or are they a wave? Right. Um, and they're waves. I, I think that, you know, performance varies from, time, from game to game, from period to period, and I, I don't think we have, you know, enough knowledge to be able to pull that out and say, okay, that, that's not who he is. Maybe that is. 
But isn't it also the case that a lot depends on, on the context of the player? I was thinking of Dallas Keuchel last year in September. He had a start at Texas. He gave up nine earned runs. And it added 30 points to his ERA all at once and pushed his whip up over the 1.0 mark. And I think at the time, at least, we believed that Dallas Keuchel was a better pitcher than that. And it really was just one start out of an entire year. And it's not like... He's one of those guys who has a nine earned run start every three or four weeks, and that makes him very unpredictable and risky. Is there is there a question of whether we believe that it's an anomaly versus it's just part of his pattern? Uh, it, it it is an anomaly, but that that's part of. I mean, that's the bottom part of the wave. I mean, King Felix had two of those terrible outings, you know, last year. Three, actually, really. Do we take all three of those out? I don't think you do. Is it, that's the exact question that you need to ask, though, and and because the uh, the season imposes an arbitrary endpoint for your projection, especially if you're looking at a guy like Trevor Story this year, and you say, well, he hit seven home runs in the first week, I'm fairly comfortable thinking he's not going to hit 160 home runs this year. So I I just don't believe that baseline, and for that reason, I do have to take it out at least somewhat because I can't. I can't use it as any kind of baseline, and then the question becomes, well, what do you use for a baseline? Sure. But does that change your baseline? Right. Does that say, okay, well, he's capable of so much more than I thought he was capable of? It should certainly do that, but at the same time, it becomes a question of, especially in the first week, I've heard people say, with some justification, if Trevor Story hits seven home runs in the like third week of July or the fourth week of July, it's kind of one of those quirky story type of things, and it mm-hmm. looks it looks way more anomalous at that point because he hasn't been hitting seven home runs a week up till then. All of a sudden, he has a week with seven home runs, and we presume he's going to go back to his one or two a week that he's been managing, or you know, two every three weeks kind of thing. It's just that it happened at the start, and it seems to color how everybody thinks about this guy in a way that it wouldn't have at almost any other time of the year. Yeah, it do- it does. It does, but at the same time, at draft season, I saw people comparing him to Josh Rutledge, and you know that certainly those stopped. You know those comparisons stopped. You know, you know it's so to that end. I think it, it, you know, when you have something that's an outlier of that amplitude, you need to look at it a little closer and see what happens about that. There, of course, no one's saying he's going to hit, you know, you know, you know, 140 homers. We know that. But at the same time, maybe it's like, okay, well, instead of being capable of hitting 15, he's capable of hitting 25 to 30. And that's a fair assessment to make. Uh, Would you make that same assessment halfway through the year if he had, up to that point, been on pace for 15, and then all of a sudden he hits 7, now he's at 22? Do you now say, well, this guy's a a genuine 30 home run caliber hitter? Uh, I would say he's got a genuine chance at becoming a 30 home run hitter. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, it, it would definitely raise the bar of what I think he's capable of. I think outliers are important when you, when you especially when you see something of such extreme magnitude. Um, I, I think you, it, it's worth at least exploring it further. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, do you feel the same way about pitchers? It's it's fairly common for analysis if, when you read on the various websites that uh, somebody says take out this one bad start and his ERA and whip would have been X which is always uh, an improvement and it seems reasonable and we hear it a lot uh, do you think the flaw is the same way if if you if you take it out you're just falsifying the record basically yeah I, I totally think you are um, and I think that's a good, great way of phrasing it 
um, almost like you're a scientist or something there. Um, <laughs> I, I think Pardon. that it's real. I think that's that's a really good way of approaching it. There, it is part of your record. You, you don't take out the guy's best start. Why are we taking out his worst start? Well, we sometimes do take out his best start if our perception of him going into the analysis is he's a bad pitcher, and all of a sudden he shows but that, up that, after. But you know that's the, that, but you know and that's stop right there because that's the problem. You're, you're, you, the players aren't cards. They're not fixed values, first of all. And it's almost like, okay, my analysis is X. I want to believe X. So, therefore, I'm going to take out the thing that disputes X. You know, it, it's, it's like, it, it's, it's almost that you're coloring the evidence to support, you, you know, you're arriving at the conclusion first instead of doing the experiment. And believe me, I, I think you're exactly right on all of this, and I think it's a real problem in uh, all kinds of different analysis that goes on. And I especially think about politics, which I don't want to get into, but we both know that when you read political stories, there's some fairly uh, aggressive cherry-picking of data going on oh, as, sure. the, as the sides try to justify, oh, our guy's actually winning, even though he hasn't won a, hasn't won a race yet, you know, kind of thing. Right, Exactly. While you guys were discussing Nick Castellanos of the Tigers, you made an interesting point about some of the players who've been caught with PEDs. And I'm not suggesting Nick Castellanos is using PEDs. Certainly, we have no right. absolute proof of it. And I was interested when you when you started talking about that. I was thinking, well, they're going to be talking about a home run surge, and you guys weren't talking about power. You were talking about batting average. How? how what was the point there? Uh, and this is uh, my colleague Chris Liss is the one that kind of. I mean, we 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 kind of stumbled upon a theory together, but he kind of asserted a little bit more. And, and keep in mind, we are not saying that Nick Castellanos is doing that, okay? Uh, but would he fit the pattern? And his his notion was often you see a surge in batting average. You know, when you when you find these PED, some of these guys that test positive for PEDs, um, that uh, an unsustainable surge in batting average is like. You know, especially guys that can maintain power. They have a high. They used to have a high strikeout rate, yet they still got this big batting average surge. That's the type of guy that sometimes you have to take a take a second look at there. And both Colabello and D. Gordon, who uh, were busted this year, fit that pattern. And I think you guys uh, pointed out Melky Cabrera a year or two ago as yeah, well. Jumped, jumped thirty-five points. Yeah. So is this something that we should all be looking for? A guy who has an otherwise unexplained 30 or 40 point bump in a in a batting average for a season, especially it seems it seems more of a pointer for a guy like Gordon who wasn't a hard hitting guy prior to that and he all of a sudden starts roping um, hard hit balls all over the place and he improves his batting average on balls in play by 30 or 40 points or whatever it worked out to be. I think it's fair to be skeptical. Um especially, you know, again, you know, it, it's just one thing to look at uh, among the package of things to look at there. Uh, you know, you don't want to make this a statistical witch hunt, but, you know, hey, you, you know, we're always trying to find explanations for why things happen, good and bad. You know, that, that's part of our toolkit. I'm thinking about it from the point of view of, of a fantasy owner. I know that when, when you said that, I thought to myself, this is going to be one of my markers when I look at a, a factor fluke kind of question of a guy who seems to have had a pretty big jump in his batting average. And I guess you could also be looking for somebody who's had a sudden decline in his batting average, maybe from stopping using it after he signs his big contract or something like that. Yeah. 
as far as its sustainability. I think that it's a real interesting marker. Again, I don't want to point the finger at anybody. Sometimes batting averages go up because you just swing better or have better coaching. There's lots of reasons, but it's certainly something to look at. And maybe the, a good takeaway, too, is that hey, maybe we should be wary of investing in these guys in keeper leagues, the guys that uh, you know have had an anomalous jump. Um, and for various reasons, whether it's PDs or, or other reasons, you know, that, hey, if a guy has had something that's way out of line with his career, you know, it seems like, seems to me like in keeper leagues in particular, that's, that's where you got to be a little bit careful in investing in those guys. Yeah, because it's it's almost like the uh, the guy who had a bad start becomes the guy who had a bad or good season, and it and we allow it to to have a disproportionate effect on how we think about the player. Do we have to change his baseline based on these new performances? You know, we could say, well, his last five seasons were all pretty bad batting average, and then he had this outlier season. If you just leave that out, he's still a bad he's still a bad hitter. Yeah, yeah, and there there, there are lots of reasons why a guy's performance can you know. You know, just go back into thin air, too. It doesn't even have to be a, a better living through chemistry problem. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Erickson from rotowire.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. And uh, in your show with Chris Liss, you got into some discussion about Sabre metrics that I thought was really interesting. And um, I wanted to say that you guys have lost faith in some aspects of it. I think that might be a bit strong, but I know that you had some concerns. Yeah, and I, I think it more so Chris than myself, but at the same time, I, it's an interesting choice to term faith, you know, because, you know, often sabermetrics have been invoked as a counter to faith. Uh, you know, we just, I believe in this guy, a, club, a clubhouse, is ma- he's a good clubhouse guy, he's got the right makeup, you know, this is why he's doing well. Well, no, he's had this, you know, his backup's been high, you know, he's had he's a strand, late, strand rates low, blah, 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 all these things. And yet, and so, it's, it's been, sabermetrics has been the side of science all along, if it's science versus faith. But the belief in our stat being predictive is a matter of faith at times. We, it's not always tested right. And as we get more information, we're finding that there's flaws in that, too. You know, whether it's, you know, pitch count or, you know, what, what was it uh, that Randy Jazierly uh, introduced? Uh, the, there is, I forget the, the metric he used in terms of, like, the high-stress pitch count and all that. And, you know, that's been kind of changed over time, and it's not because Randy had bad science or anything like that. It's because you know, we know more information. Same thing with BABIP. Um, that, you know, we've, we've found now that often hitters will have their own baseline for their batting average and balls in play. Uh, and now we know more because we now know the velocity coming off the bat. That's one of the things that's kind of different over time, that we've learned different over time. We have more information. And I think it's one of the great things is we keep digging, keep digging. So we might want to believe something is true, but it's not always true. Carlos Zambrano, when he was a good pitcher for five, six years running, used to stymie all the advanced metrics. And why? He was a different type of pitcher. You know, it, he his type of... You know, stuff induced weak contract year after year after year. That perhaps was a skill for him, and I think we need to entertain that notion that hey, this can be wrong, and we got to keep looking into that. And so the pushback now is it's interesting because there's so many different uh, level layers of this here. There's a pushback against those that will just say, "Hey, he's got a high BABIP; it's coming down, therefore it's going to change." End of story. Uh, but there's also <laughs> there's a pushback from the complete non 
non-interested side of sabermetrics, you know, you often will see, say, maybe on, I don't know, MLB Network or something, where it's like 9 out of 10 analysts are ex-players that don't want to believe in that at all. And again, we're using the word believe, so, you know, use that for what, take that for what it's worth. But we get that push back here and back and forth where one bad metric or one bad use of metric is indicting of sabermetrics as a whole. And that's, that's wrong, too. Um, so it's an interesting spot to be in right now. It kind of reminds me of nutrition science, Jeff. For years, they tell us, don't eat butter, it'll kill you. And then one day, they just turn around on a dime and they say, we've done better research, we understand how these biomechanical systems work, and we were wrong. you got to eat butter, you got to eat lots of butter or you'll die. You know, and, and all of a sudden, you have to kind of upend your entire understanding of what you should be eating, what you shouldn't be eating. And this kind of stuff, of course, drives right. people crazy. But don't eat sugar, but oh, wait, these, uh, these uh, sweetener enhancements are even worse for you. You know, these the substitute sweeteners are even worse for you. You know, uh, of course. Uh, and maybe the problem with butter was it used to be on all this bread, and this bread wasn't really good for you. So, you know, hey, everything's bad for you, nothing's good for you. Everything's good for you, nothing's bad for you. And when we apply this, as you said, back to uh, baseball analysis, I think one of the big problems is we believe for a while because of Oris McCracken's work that that hit rate is a set 30% for all pitchers. Then we find out that really certain kinds of pitchers have lower ones. Other kinds of pitchers have higher ones. Relief pitchers are a completely different kettle of fish entirely on that subject. Batters, as you said, establish their own uh, hit rates or BABIP rates. And the people who are want to disparage sabermetrics as a as a field say yeah well a year ago you told me that all these babbits would go down and they didn't and now you're saying it's go up i don't believe any of it right right and that's cherry, that's again we go back to the cherry picking problem just cuz you were they were wrong on this particular aspect doesn't mean all you know baseball analytical work is is invalid it just means that they were wrong about this that's all it means in a more general sense, Jeff, how should fantasy owners use the advanced metrics, the advanced information that we now have? I think it's best to describe what has happened in the past. Um, I think it can be applied to help us figure out what's going to happen in the future, but it's the start of the conversation. It's one tool in our toolbox. And what are the others, and how would you weight them in importance? I, I hesitate to weight them. Um, but we have to, I guess that's part of the problem, but I would look at, you know, I'd look at the scouting reports out there. I'd try to watch as much as I can. I know we, it's dangerous trying to be your own scout, but Hey, those, we love, first of all, we love baseball. Watching baseball is a good thing. Keep watching baseball, do more of it. Um, try to see if you can pick something up, not necessarily for like, uh, you know, all, all of a sudden become the swing mechanics master. Although if you can, great, if you can find that niche. But maybe you'll you'll see how like a guy you know something guys at bats are going and you can see okay he's fouling them straight off Andrew McCutcheon hit one just foul and then struck out later all we'll see on this the, the the line the line is that he had a, a strikeout but the fact is he barely missed a grand slam you know that that happened on Monday you know little things like that and that's a poor example because he's a pretty solid player last year's first month and a half notwithstanding but. It, you know, you can use that as kind of a guide for us here too. See what sort of at bats he's having. See, you know, what you know. So try to get as much context as you can. And I would also recommend find people who disagree with you about 
certain things in the expert community. There's lots, God knows there's enough uh, people writing about baseball on the internet uh, at Baseball HQ, my site at, ro- at rotowire.com, your site. Listen to the, the radio shows and the podcasts that are out there and find out what other people are thinking. I get a tremendous amount of use out of uh, our mutual friend Joe Sheehan's newsletter, and he's very seldom talking about fantasy baseball, maybe one newsletter in 20. But he's always talking about baseball and he's talking about it intelligently and it gives you something to think about when you're weighing the decisions that you have to make during the course of a year. And I find all of that kind of stuff has to filter into your thinking system rather than just this hardcore reliance on if his BABIP is 38 or 380, then it's got to come down to 350. Exactly as you said, you see this all the time. It's going to happen. It's not like it should happen or there's a 70% chance it will happen. It is going to happen. And a lot of times it doesn't. Yeah, and I would say, moreover, I'd say seek out people that you typically disagree with. I, I, and apply that to life, you know, politically. Find, you know, read what other people say, you know, people say that are opposed to your viewpoints. Figure out what why they're saying that there. Sometimes they might even have a, have a point. I think most people earnestly come to their uh their their points of view earnestly come to their in the, their uh, what, 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 I'm trying to think of a good way their world view and I think it's they're not dumb they're not they're not dumb or evil in most cases they might be wrong they might not be they might they might have something think of something that you might not have thought of and you know you should uh, I I tend to believe that you know I know we have our our, our own sort of worldview we have our own starting point but I think you you do yourself a disservice by not exposing yourself to other to other viewpoints. And here we're veering off into a, an interesting political and, uh, and philosophical discussion uh, having to do with how people are segregating themselves into communities of thought as well as uh, increasingly into communities of actual place. And I think you're right. I think that's a real dangerous place to be. If you, if you want to figure out how things are and what you should do, you need to have a cast a broader net. Yeah, I think so. I think that's true. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jeff Erickson, exchanging views on which we mostly agree, but sometimes not, and and that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, Jeff, during the season, I always ask our experts to talk about studs and duds. You can define a stud or a dud any way you want, but basically it's studs a guy you'd like to have, duds a guy you don't want to have. Uh, if there was a trade discussion, you'd trade them rather than acquiring them and so forth. Uh, let's start with the hitters if you're ready, and uh, let's go to the American League. Who's a hitter that you would uh, classify as a stud? And most of these guys I'm trying to pick out because I think they're interesting in one way, shape, or form or another. Travis Shaw of the uh, Boston Red Sox. I missed out on him, I think, on pretty much every season-long league. I didn't think that, uh, I didn't have faith, if you will, that Boston would stick into it doing the right thing. And then Pablo Sandoval got hurt and made it a moot point. But people don't realize how much, just the degree to which he's been smoking right-handers this year. 1,100 OPS so far this year, 649 slugging percentage all against righties, and 111 at-bats. Um, I... I'm beyond the point of thinking this is just a mere, uh, you know, batting average fueled fluke, uh, or, or BABIP, if you will, flu- fueled fluke. Although those th- those metrics are, do- I mean, he's doing, you know, he does have a 406 BABIP, but you know what? He's also got an I- ISO of 244. He's driving it. He's hitting the ball with such great authority. Uh, he, he's still not uh, getting priced up in DFS pools more often than not, um, especially because he's at a power laden position at third base. But I, I think there, you know, you can under 
you know, I, I think you can underappreciate how good he has been. Um, and I'm going to buy high on him, if anything. Travis Shaw is one of those guys that really does benefit if you watch him play. He has yep. a he has a beautiful swing. He makes great contact, especially off right-handers, as you said. And he he uses the field. He's a really good hitter. And uh, like you, uh, and like most of people, I imagine nobody saw this coming to the extent that everybody's going to claim they did if they had him on their team. Uh, who's a stud hitter for you in the National League? Uh, let's go Jonathan Jonathan VR. I mean, we're talking how stolen bases are down at the beginning of the season, and they, they, they've they been down again this year, even more so. Jonathan VR's flown in the face of that. And, you know, he was undervalued significantly on draft day, in part because, or, you know, he the thought is he's keeping it warm for Orlando Arcia, and he might be, but guess what? That might be a, may take longer than you think, and they might find other ways to get him in. I mean, the Brewers could be trading away other remaining parts he came you know he was acquired as basically a cast off uh but the guy's got 12 stolen bases now he he's got a complete green light he's he's been caught five times i'd like to see that a better percentage but he's actually walking a ton this year that's the one thing that's kind of caught my eye uh he's got a 13 percent walk rate this year after historically being around seven or eight uh at least in the big league level He's still, yes, he's striking out a lot. He's not going to maintain hitting for this average. But even when the average comes down, because he's walking so much, he's going to be valuable. How is his ground ball rate? I like guys, even if they strike out more than I'd like, I don't mind a player who's got great speed and puts the ball on the ground because he gets, you know, he doesn't have to get that many leg hits to change himself from a 270 hitter to a 300 hitter. That's right. That's for sure. Um, And ground ball rate is sky high at 64 percent this year with the brewers um three to three and a half to one ground ball to fly ball ratio so he knows who he is you know billy hamilton should take note and sometimes as maturity sets in we always expect guys are going to physically fill out but sometimes they emotionally fill out too and somebody says to this guy you know what if you get on base and you can steal 25 bases in a year get on get on base at a 325 330 clip which on that team would be outstanding you're going to make a couple of million bucks. And if you keep swinging for the fences, you're going to be making $800 a, a, a week playing in the minor leagues and taking buses. So sometimes guys just take a little while to figure it out. And Jonathan VR, I, I agree with you. I think he's a he's a great find. And I imagine there's lots of people who had him for a dollar or in the reserve rounds, and they're pretty happy about it. Uh, in the American League, who's a hitter you think is a dud, somebody you'd like to get rid of if you had him or wouldn't uh, wouldn't dream of signing? Last year's bum is this year's bum in the case of Carlos Gomez. And I'm wondering now, now that he's on the DL with this rib problem, how much of this was, you know, you know, was there any other underlying physical problem before that? Or is this something that is being just a good a chance to give him a chance to get well again or not? But the quality of his at-bats have been terrible all year. Um, seven, seven walks, 46 strikeouts. Uh, if you use like the strong contact, medium contact, weak contact uh, metrics, uh, his have been terrible uh, among the the league leaders on weak contact all year long. I was wrong on him. I, I got him in a couple of places. Thought he'd be a good bounce back candidate. I thought like, hey, end of the fourth round, fifth round is a bargain on him. This is a guy that was drafted in the first round a year ago. But maybe it's just that the, the two outliers were really the 2013-2014 seasons. And his level is back to where it is. You know, it's interesting that the Mets found a physical reason to turn down that trade uh, for him last year in right. the trade deadline. So we'll see what happens with him. But I'm no longer so sanguine on his prospects. Uh, how about in the National League, a dud hitter? Jorge Soler, 
losing playing time, even with Kyle Schwarber out. Uh, the, the thing, big Solaire's big problem too is that the Cubs have lots of alternatives. They they have guys that can you know they can put Chris Bryant in the outfield. They've got Tommy Lasella that can fit a lot of different Lasella that can fit a lot of different places. Javi Baez is back, and that's giving him some creativity. They can put Zobrist in the outfield. You know, and Solaire, I mean, he just isn't getting it. And I thought he was a good bounce back candidate. Um, so far, not so much. He is walking a little bit more, striking out a little bit less. You would think that would translate, but it hasn't. Jeff Erickson's hitters from the American League, his stud Travis Shaw of Boston, in the National League, his stud Jonathan Villar of Milwaukee, his duds in the American League, Carlos Gomez of Houston, and in the National League, Jorge Soler of the Cubs. Let's move over to the mound, Jeff, uh, in the American League. Who's a stud pitcher, a guy you really like? Rich Hill. What a great story. Couldn't stay healthy, couldn't find his command for years and years and years. Then came at had three September, you know, four September starts where he is, you know, three of which where he had ten strikeouts. Um, and it's just all in, out of nowhere. And you know, he was strikingly available because he he briefly lost his command in spring training, so his his acquisition cost was really low. You know, it's hard to find guys with that sort of high strikeout upside, but he's got it, and he's he's righted the ship this year. He had a, a rough beginning of the season, but he from the, on average has been very good this year. Uh, it's a great story. Jeff, you talked about Rich Hill's terrific September, and I remember it last year, and I was kind of had him penciled in as a guy I might want to look at in my end game at Tout American League, and then he had this terrible spring, and I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, but I had I kind of put, put him on the back burner there. How much should we be looking at those late previous season performances? Because it's easy to get burned there, too. Oh, it is. It's super easy. I think you have to get pretty granular and look at who he is facing and the conditions and all that. And even then, you know, it was a couple of September starts against the Yankees, I recall. And, you know, if, you know, doing it against the Yankees was pretty impressive, actually. So I was kind of quietly optimistic about that. Uh, I do have him on a couple of teams. He's not out of the woods yet, by the way. He's had uh, 11 walks in his last three outings. So, I mean, the, the command is still a problem there, too, uh, worth at least uh, tracking. In the National League, who's your stud pitcher that you like? Uh, National League, I'm looking at Drew Pomerantz, guy that earned the job, uh, barely, held on to it, um, and would benefit a little bit by Tyson Ross getting hurt, but he became, you know, more than just the fill-in fifth starter. He's now in that rotation for good, got a great ballpark to pitch in. He's had the pre- pedigree. Remember, he was the fifth overall pick in his draft, Uh He's healthy, finally. Last year he had rage issues, like punched a table or a locker or something like that after a bad outing. And, you know, he, he had the misfortune of going to, to Colorado, uh, where they handled him really weirdly. He jumped straight to double-A after that trade, part of the Hubaldo Jimenez trade. Um, and it took a while for them to get him, you know, get him in the, you know, get him going. And he got out of Colorado. He's got a full-time starting job now. And I, he, he's still readily available in leagues maybe not you know in, in mixed league in some thinner mixed league you can even still pick him up and i'm guaranteed many people will be willing to trade him for value too and i i think he's going to be someone that's kind of sustainable i like those guys who had the pedigree and didn't pan out right away because uh, a lot of people are so impatient with these young players and if he doesn't come and uh, just Sore immediately once they let him out of his uh, cage into the big leagues, and he struggles, and everybody says he'll never make it right away. And and you're, when you're looking at these top guys, 
it's it's something you really need to be aware of. I think that there's there are guys out there. Archie Bradley comes to mind. I mean, he's had his struggles too, but he was a very high draft pick and he struggled. We saw him in the Arizona Fall League and he didn't look that great. He didn't look horrible, but there are I think guys coming back from that first failed attempt at the big leagues really merit our uh, close observation, shall we say? I, I agree, and it doesn't happen immediately. But Jose Barrios is another one. Just got sent down after a terrible outing. He'll come back and be be good at some point, I would bet. And I think there's a there's a buying opportunity there, especially in keeper leagues. Who's your American League pitcher that you classify as a dud? Dallas Keuchel, uh, 25 walks already this season. Uh, he, he's had a you know every once in a while he has a good outing to kind of tease us, or a decent one like last night was okay against the White Sox, uh, a team that hit, does hit lefties pretty well, but he's just not there yet. The command's just not there. Uh, you know, I remember the you know the five walk game against Minnesota is just a team that you cannot walk a, a bunch of guys. You think figure as a home start, he'd do well there. He he has admittedly had a tough schedule. He's you know, but nonetheless, you, you got to pitch around that there. He's had twice as many road in, uh, innings as he's had home innings. He was a, a stud at home last year, and that you know that'll kind of normalize a little bit the the luck of the schedule a little bit. But yeah, you know, I'm still a little concerned. Especially because I think he's someone that works on the margins a little bit. Because he doesn't throw so hard, he's got to have great command. Um, and he's not throwing as hard as he did last year, by the way. He's a mile and a half down. Do you suspect there's an injury working here? Maybe, maybe not. He threw a lot of innings last year. You know, uh, 232 in the regular season, well above what he's ever done, plus playoff innings. It could be injury related, or it just could be just, you know, yeah, just a lot of use. And, you know, we often see guys when they get exposed to their, their best. And I think there's also the, uh, you know, what goes up must come down thing a little bit here, too. I think it'll be better the rest of the way. But, yeah, I'm a little worried about the command. And finally, who's your dud pitcher in the National League? Shelby Miller. I actually, I, I, I wasn't, like, considering him that often as a stud. I was stunned at the trade at the time by the Diamondbacks. I don't have him anywhere, but... I'm now actively seeking opportunities to start guys against him. I will be fielding, for instance, a Yankee stack and DFS against him uh, uh, if, if I get a chance to do so tonight. I'm going to try to find ways to go against him. You see that, and this is one where the, the knuckle scraping thing that he's had, you know, his, his mechanics are completely different now. And is, is he overthrowing? Is he cover, you know, accounting for some other injury? Is, he, is that something that's just out of whack that can be fixed? You know, I, I like it when sometimes when they say, oh, it's just a mechanical problem, it'll get fixed. Well, if it was that easy, it would be done already. It, they would do it in the middle of a start. They'd fix it. It's just, you know, how does a guy fall into that mechanical problem in the first place? You know, it's not, I, don't, I think it's easy to say, oh, it's a mechanical problem. It'll be fine. He spotted it. Now we're fine. But it's not that easy. And it's not that easy to get over whatever the problem is because yeah, you right. have to und- un- unlearn your bad habits to get back into good ones, and that takes a kind of advanced coaching that a lot of teams are not capable of providing. Uh, Jeff Erickson's pitchers in studs and duds. In the American League stud, Rich Hill of Oakland, his National League stud, Drew Pomeranz of San Diego, his duds in the American League, Dallas Keuchel, and in the National League Shelby Miller of Arizona. And you mentioned uh, stacking guys against Shelby Miller, I guess... I was curious how much DFS uh, that you're playing. I play pretty much every weeknight. I love it. It's fun. Um, I'm mediocre at it. I'm still learning it uh, a little bit there. It's not just trying to figure out who's going to do well on a given night. It's also about making the pieces fit and finding you know the, the, the concept of value. And I think it's a different skill than your season long, but it's a skill. 
um, I enjoy the challenge, and I want to keep playing it. You are pretty well connected with people in the industry, in the fantasy baseball industry, in the fantasy sports industry in general. Do you have any insights into the eventual outcome of what's going to happen with fantasy sports in general or anything specific? I think season long is going to be fine still. I'm not really that worried about that. I am worried that DFS as we know it will change. Maybe not worried is the right term. Uh, so I, I think I, I'm, I should say I'm convinced that it's going to change and it might be for the better, might be for the worse. Uh, the two hegemon companies are probably going to different in a year or two i don't know uh, at least and how they operate i think they've already changed a little bit uh it, you know we're not going to see the wild spending spree on advertising that we did see in the past i think that's those days those days are gone um i think it'll mirror the, the online poker world to a certain extent except they're better dfs is better connected and it's more connected in this country which actually helps a lot um I think it helps them a lot that, you know, that I think we'll get past this. We'll have DFS legalized one way, shape, or form in most every state soon. Um, but it's going to be it's gonna be a little bumpy for the next couple of years. Tell our listeners how they can stay in touch with Jeff Erickson. Uh, first way is just to listen to the show. Uh, Mondays, Monday through Thursday, I'm on, but Rotowire Fantasy Sports Today is on Monday through Friday on Sirius and XM from 11 to 2 Eastern Time or 8 to 11 Pacific, as I like to emphasize since I'm out here. Uh, I'm personally on Monday through Thursday, co-hosting with Liz. I also do a Sunday podcast with Scott Jenstad. Uh, Sunday night pod, the podcast rolls, on, rolls out usually early Monday morning. Um, and, of course, on the website and on Twitter, uh, Jeff underscore Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Jeff, thanks a million for doing this. It has been, uh, as usual, insightful and fun and interesting. Really appreciate you coming on. I'll have to get you back on a little later in the season. We can check your studs and duds. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Jeff Erickson, as you heard, writes for rotowire.com and has a regular show Monday through Thursday on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. It's XM Channel 87, Sirius 210. We have our commentaries coming up. But first, let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, in the GM's office, Ray Murphy discusses how to use the leading indicators section of the Baseball HQ website. Brian Rudd's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation looks at Matt Lucroy, Matt Kemp, and others. In a new research piece, and in a new research piece, Nick Trojanowski discusses how to combine September and April to forecast the rest of the season. During the season, BaseballHQ.com also has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, full team coverage and minor league scouting, and of course, the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers, our weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on the Kansas City Royals third base prospect Hunter Dozier is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. The Kansas City Royals' Hunter Dozier has been slow to develop as a pro, but looks to be in the midst of a nice breakout season this year. Dozier, who was the 8th overall pick in the 2013 draft, hit just 213 with 12 home runs and 151 strikeouts last year, prompting some to write him off as a failed prospect. But he has been much better in 2016. 
Through his first 36 games, the 24-year-old Dozier is hitting 306 with a 384 on-base percentage and a very nice 619 slugging percentage. He has 12 doubles and 10 home runs and just 134 at-bats. Strikeouts continue to be an issue, but his contact rate has gone up from 70% last year to 80% this year. At 6'4", 220, Dozier has good size and plus raw power, but his swing can get long as he sells out to hit for power. He moves well defensively and has a plus arm at third base, but speed isn't going to be part of his game in the majors. With Mike Moustaka starting a rehab assignment this week, the Royals are not likely to need Dozier right away. But if he continues to pound the ball and can limit his strikeouts, he does have the raw tools to make an impact once he reaches the majors. Those in deep keeper formats might want to stash Dozier away, as it looks like he could be a little bit of a late bloomer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scout team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes our ongoing daily call-ups coverage with prospects like Oakland first baseman Max Muncy, Houston third baseman Colin Moran, whom we mentioned in the American League Market Watch earlier, and more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are Atlanta shortstop Ozzie Albiez and Cleveland starting pitcher Mike Clevenger. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Last summer, July 8, 2015 to be exact, our own Chris Blessing described an Atlanta single-A shortstop prospect whose stock is skyrocketing. Who is it? We'll give you a hint. He wasn't talking about Dansby Swanson, the first overall pick in last year's draft, but this prospect is now in AAA and pushing hard for promotion to the big leagues before reaching the age of 20. More importantly, he's one of two frequent flyers, a hitter and a pitcher, will profile this week, beginning with 19-year-old Atlanta Braves shortstop Ozzie Albies, who is currently batting 308 with three home runs and 157 minor league at-bats this season. By most accounts, Ozzie Albies is exceeding expectations. After spending last season with the single-A Rome Braves, where he batted 310 with no home runs and 29 steals, Ozzie Albies has progressed all the way to AAA in 2016. Man, that's fast. Speaking of fast, in the 2016 Minor League Baseball Analyst, we described Ozzie Albies as having plus-plus speed with a potential rating of 9C, or a 50% probability of reaching elite status, or 9 on a scale of 10, where 10 indicates Hall of Fame career potential. However, we didn't see him progressing this quickly. At the age of 19, we expected him to make his Major League debut sometime in 2018, and that could still happen. Remember that Ozzie Albies, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. However, after showing some power, hitting two home runs at AAA in only 19 games and three total for the season, the Braves may be forced to change their calculus. As BaseballHQ.com's Greg Pyron pointed out in the May 9th edition of Plague Time Today, Eric Ibar's days at shortstop in Atlanta could be numbered, especially when Ibar is only batting 172 in 2016. 
To put that in perspective, Eric Ibar has four walks, five RBI, and 23 hits with 27 strikeouts and 132 at-bats in 2016. Maybe the Braves won't rush Ozzy Albies, but maybe they should. Grab him if he's available. Now let's turn our attention to the 2015 Cleveland Indians minor league pitcher of the year, Mike Clevenger, who made his major league debut for the Indians last Wednesday, May 18th, against the Cincinnati Reds. Working five and one-third innings, Mike Clevenger allowed four runs on five hits with five strikeouts and one walk. Prior to his promotion, Mike Clevenger was 5-0 and with a 3.03 ERA through seven starts for AAA Columbus this season. More importantly, Mike Clevenger has shown the ability to strike batters out. Not only did he lead all Cleveland minor league pitchers in strikeouts in 2015 with 145 punchouts at AA Akron, but Mike Clevenger produced an 8.25 dom for the 2015 season, where we consider a dom of seven or higher to be elite. Ranked number five among the prospects listed, BaseballHQ.com's 2016 organizational report for the Cleveland Indians, our own Jeremy Deloney said that Mike Clevenger should challenge for a call-up at some point during the season as he is already good enough to pitch in the majors. Nailed it. The report went on to say that finishing second in the AA Eastern League in strikeouts wasn't a fluke. Although 2015 was widely considered to be a breakout year for Mike Clevenger, who spent most of 2013 and 14 trying to regain his form after Tommy John surgery, the potential is there for Clevenger to become a solid contributor at the major league level as early as this season. In fact, we are predicting that Mike Clevenger has the ability to be a solid number three starter at the major league level. To that effect, Mike Clevenger has been given a potential rating of 8C, or a 50% probability of reaching his potential as a solid regular. Perhaps Mike Clevenger, with his 2.12 command ratio and 9.26 dom in the minors this season, along with the expected home run rate of one or less, would be a great Lima plan candidate. Either way, there is certainly fantasy upside when it comes to both Ozzy Albies and Mike Clevenger, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated over one are strong bets for you to play while those under one are strong bets for you to sit them. Between the ones, you'll just have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance. We have a fine Saturday pairing of National League right-handers with Washington's Joe Ross at Miami against the Marlins' Jose Fernandez. There's a Sunday American League game matching Chris Archer of the Rays against surprising right-hander Jordan Zimmerman of Detroit in Comerica Park. Plus two more weekend matchups, and here to tell you all about it is analyst Greg Fishwick. The first quarter of the 2016 season is over. Barring bad weather in Boston for the Indian series there, every team will have played at least 41 games by Sunday. So before we get into this weekend's matchups, let's take our annual look at our record six weeks into the season. I gave you 12 of our recommended starts, 11 risk-reward wildcards, and 26 recommended sits. Based on our new criteria, it looks like we're throwing a PQS3. Of the recommended starts, about half were PQS dominant. One of the 12 did not make his scheduled start. Four of the remaining 11 were PQS 5s and one was a PQS 4, 
making five of the 11 PQS dominant, with six of the 11 PQS threes or better. There were also four PQS twos and only one PQS disaster score of one. The dominant to disaster starts ratio was 45% dominant to 9% disaster. The average PQS score for recommended starts was 3.3. Of the 11 risk-reward wildcard starts, 9 were made as scheduled, and one-third of those, or 3, were disasters. 2 PQS 1s and 1 PQS 0. One outing was a PQS dominant 5, and there were 4 solid PQS 3s, plus a PQS 2. So 5 of 9, or more than half, resulted in PQS 3s or better. The dominant to disaster starts ratio was 11% dominant to 33% disaster. The average PQS score for risk-reward wildcard starts was 3.1. 24 of the 26 recommended sits proceeded as scheduled, and one-fourth of them, or six, were PQS disasters, with three PQS 1s and three PQS 0s. But surprisingly, one-third of them, or eight, were PQS dominant, with two PQS 5s and six PQS 4s. More in line with expectations, there were five PQS 3s and five more PQS 2s. So nearly half, or 11 of 24, were PQS 2s or worse. The dominant to disaster starts ratio was 33% dominant to 25% disaster. The average PQS score for recommended sits was 2.3. Now let's see what we have in store this weekend. We'll switch things up a bit and look at two matchups for Saturday in the National League and two matchups for Sunday in the American League. All four of our National League Saturday starters are risk-reward wildcards, as are two of those in the American League matchups on Sunday. The other two American League hurlers are the only ones in the recommended start and recommended sit ranges. All told, we'll review three starters who made Stephen Nickrand's list of early sell-high targets from his May 15 starting pitcher buyer's guide. Don't look now, but the Colorado Rockies have a winning record on the road and a winning record overall. They'll send surprising Tyler Chatwood and his matchup rating of 075 into Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park. He'll get the ball against one of pitcher whisperer Ray Searage's latest reclamation projects, John Neese. Nice has a matchup rating of 005. In addition to their winning records on the road and overall, the Rockies have winning records against left-handed pitchers and versus teams at or above 500. In four road starts, Chatwood has two PQS 5s and two PQS 3s for an average score of four. Baseball HQ's Stephen Nickran noted that Chatwood's low first pitch strike rate of 57% jeopardizes his decent control rate of 2.5 and suggested that Chatwood is a sell-high candidate. But you might want to wait until after this outing. In four home starts, Nice has two PQS 3s, a PQS 2, and a PQS 1. That makes Nice the risk and Chatwood the reward in this one. Also on Saturday in the National League, we have a matchup between a Miami starter who's found his way and a Washington rookie who may have lost his way. Jose Fernandez is in his pitcher-friendly home of Marlins Park with a matchup rating of 0.44. He'll face the Nationals' Joe Ross, who has a matchup rating of minus 0.31. Fernandez has put up PQS 4s in his past two starts, going 7 innings and striking out 11 in each, while allowing only one earned run in the 14 combined innings pitched. Ross has laid two PQS goose eggs in his past two starts, one against Miami. 
versus teams that are at or above 500, Washington has a losing record and Miami has a winning record. Expect Fernandez to continue dominating and Ross to continue struggling as he faces the Marlins for the fourth time this season and second time in a row. In the American League on Sunday, Rick Porcello of the Red Hot Red Sox is our only starting pitcher with a matchup rating in the recommended range this weekend. He's at home in hitter-friendly Fenway Park with his matchup rating of 180, where Danny Salazar opposes him with a matchup rating of minus 071. Boston has the fourth-best home record in the majors, while Cleveland is at 500 on the road. Against teams at or above 500, the Bostonians have a better record than the Clevelanders. All four of Porcello's home starts this season have been PQS dominant. Salazar has five road starts and he's averaging a PQS 3. Porcello was another starter Stephen Nickran recommended selling high, but again, you might want to wait until after this weekend. Our final matchup is also in the American League on Sunday, and it features our only matchup rating in the recommended sit range. Tampa Bay's Chris Archer has a matchup rating of minus 137 as he heads into Detroit's pitcher-friendly Comerica Park. He'll be opposed by the Tigers' free agent acquisition who's averaging a win a week, Jordan Zimmerman. Zimmerman has a mysterious risk-reward wildcard matchup rating of minus 035. What gives? Well, to begin with, Detroit has a losing record at home. And against teams at or above 500, the Tigers have lost more than twice as many games as they've won. The Rays have winning records on the road and against teams below 500. Zimmerman is yet another starting pitcher identified by Stephen Nickrand as a sell-high candidate, but he's one you may want to move as soon as possible. His surface ERA is 245, but Nickrand warns, quote, no starting pitcher is outperforming their skills more than Zimmerman is. His 435 expected ERA profiles him as a near 4 ERA pitcher. His subpar 7% swinging strike rate tells us he isn't missing enough bats to stick as an upper-tier starting pitcher. There's a big correction coming here, unquote. In a May 11 facts and flukes analysis, Baseball HQ's Dave Adler suggested that Chris Archer may have been a buy-low target because he posted two PQS-dominant scores just before Adler wrote his article. Unfortunately, Archer followed with two more clunkers. In nine starts, he's now thrown five PQS-1s, and three of those have been on the road. Archer's PQS dominant to disaster start ratio is 22% dominant to 56% disaster. He has been a bit unlucky with a hit rate of 34% and a home run per fly ball rate of 22%, which is nearly twice his previous career worst of 12%. His expected ERA of 356 might give us a <clears throat> ray of hope for something better than his surface ERA of 438. But there is a real problem lurking here. In 49 innings pitched, Archer has walked 25. His control rate of 4.6 is more than 50% higher than his previous three-year average of 2.9. And his career-low first-pitch strike rate of only 52%, compared with a previous low of 57%, and a three-year average of 60%, blocks that one ray of hope. So in addition to our sole recommended start for Rick Porcello, let's give the edge to rewards over risks for Tyler Chatwood and Jose Fernandez. But beware, the risks outweigh the rewards for John Neese, Joe Ross, Danny Salazar, Jordan Zimmerman, and Chris Archer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. 
Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. This week, I want to talk about using advanced metrics in fantasy baseball. In talking with Jeff Erickson earlier in this show, we discussed using advanced metrics in fantasy baseball and the importance of being willing to seek out conflicting ideas and to confirm whether existing certainties are as certain as we think. To its credit, BaseballHQ.com has always been highly willing to let its researchers and writers challenge the certainty of the status quo. And at Baseball HQ, no status has more quo than the mantra, once a player displays a skill, he owns it. With that in mind, I thought I'd take a look. And it turns out that a batter doesn't so much own some skills as have a short-term lease. The three basic skills a player has are, first, making contact, which Baseball HQ measures as contact percent, the percentage of at-bats without strikeouts. The second is drawing walks, which Baseball HQ calls walk rate, the percentage of plate appearances that end up in walks. And the third is power, which Baseball HQ measures with expected power index, a metric based on hard-hit ball data. To assess the ownership of these metrics, I compared the 143 batters who had at least 200 plate appearances in each of the last three seasons, 2013-15, to 15, and who were at least 23 years old and no more than 31 years old in all three seasons. That was to ease out some of the age-related effects we might expect. I was interested in the range of each batter's individual skills metrics, the actual and percentage differences between his highest and lowest measures in the three separate seasons. Let's start with contact. It turned out making contact was the most strongly owned skill. The median range of individual players over the three seasons was just 5%, and batters with ranges of 1-4 to four percentage points accounted for two-thirds of all the batters. One batter, Jed Jorko, actually had zero variation, with 75% contact in each of the three years. 17 more batters had one percentage point variations, which meant the same contact rate in two of the three years and a single point difference in the other. Only 15 batters out of the 143, less than 10%, had ranges of 8 percentage points or more. The highest were 11 percentage points, or about 16%, by Ike Davis and Aaron Hicks. So score one for skills ownership. Next, let's look at walk rate. A few years ago, I had a study on BaseballHQ.com demonstrating that walk rate, contrary to what we had been saying for years, was not a leading indicator for batting average, although it did have a loose correlation with power. At any given walk rate, the average hitter was batting about 250. We saw some high batting average guys with low walk rates, some low batting average guys with high walk rates, and everything in between. So I wasn't shocked to see that the median range in walk rates across the three seasons was 33%, with several players at 100% or higher. That means a player's highest walk rate could be more than double his lowest. For example, Troy Tulowitzki had a low walk rate of 7% in one of the seasons and a high of 14% in another. Almost half the hitters had low to high variances of more than 25%, although I do want to note that because walk rates are pretty low to begin with, a narrow change in the percentage points creates a pretty wide range in percentage terms. A batter with a walk rate low of 2% and a high of 4% has a 100% variance, despite only 2 percentage points in the variance itself. Still, score one for skills leasing. Finally, power. 
As measured by expected power index, power also showed wide variation in individual player ranges. The median individual range was 27%, with two-thirds of the batters in the group falling between 10% and 44% variance. Like walks, this seems like a pretty generous range for a skill that is supposed to be owned by a batter. Look at Brandon Moss. Is he a 137 expected power guy, as he was in 2014? Or is he a 174 expected power guy, as he was in 2013? Or maybe he's somewhere in between, as he was with a 157 in 2015. Score one for questionable skills ownership here. Why should it be that a batter doesn't actually own these key skills, or at least doesn't own them to the level of consistency we've come to expect, and the level of consistency to which a lot of analysis says the batter will certainly regress if he's not at it during any point in a season? The first question to consider in this regard is what we mean by owning the skill. I just mentioned the idea of consistency, but I deliberately didn't put any boundaries on it. Is Moss's expected power index range of 137 to 174 to 157 consistent? It might be. But if it isn't, how much tighter would the range have to be? If it is, how much looser could it be before it stopped being consistent? These things are abstract terms, which we're applying to concrete data. Maybe we could say Moss is a consistently high power source because anything above 130 or so is pretty high power. Maybe we could be less concerned about absolute skills and more with relative skill levels. We could rank all the batters in a given year in the various skills to see if the batter is consistently in one particular percentage cohort. There would be value if we were able to say Brandon Moss is consistently a top 10% power source without hanging a specific numerical value on him. The other issue is that research is now telling us that various metrics stabilize, that is, they become dependable and at least somewhat projectable after different numbers of events, plate appearances, at-bats, fly balls, batter's face, and so on. That seems to imply that the metrics could re-stabilize over different periods, which, it seems to me, is just the same as saying the metric will bounce around and have pretty wide error bars. For example, one well-known threshold list says batter strikeout rates stabilize after 60 plate appearances. So I took a perfectly median contact percent guy, Mike Moustakis of the Royals, and I looked at his 2013 through 2015 seasons, as well as the sequence of 60 plate appearance cycles during those seasons. In 2013, Moustakas had an 82% contact rate for the season, but his 60 plate appearance cycles ranged from 75% contact to 90% contact. In 2014, his overall contact rate was 84% in a season that ranged from 77% to 90% on those 60 plate appearance cycles. Last year, he was 86% for the full season in a range from 80% to 91%. And the numbers vary even more if we use rolling 60 plate appearance cycles rather than sequential ones. If the minimum for contact rate stability is a 60 plate appearance run, what can we say with confidence is Moustakis' true contact rate? About all we can really say is that it is in the range of 75% to 91%. That covers most of the players, so it isn't really like they own anything of value. You'll remember that in my interview with Jeff, I asked him how should fantasy owners employ these advanced metrics to manage their rosters. His advice was that we should think about what they mean and be ready and willing to challenge what we think and what we're told. This sounds like the right answer to me, too. 
in particular. If you hear or read an expert saying that a certain player, batter, or pitcher will regress to some established statistical level, be skeptical of that analysis. It might be likely or even measurably probable that the player will regress, but it is not a sure thing. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Master Notes is available free every Saturday morning at the BaseballHQ.com website. And you can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 20th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show. From Rotowire and Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio, it was Jeff Erickson, a great guy, always has tons of interesting insights into fantasy baseball, and one of the nicest guys in a business that's full of them. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our Friday feature guest expert will be Seth Trackman, right up at the top of the standings in Tout American League and a fantasy baseball expert in his own right. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.